am Angela Albert, Project Director at the German Book Office, New Delhi, and welcome to the Global Local Talks. This podcast series features entrepreneurs, authors, and leaders making an impact on publishing industry and the creative sectors internationally. We dive into what it takes to succeed, especially in tough conditions. We seek out lessons from all, from publishing experts to budding entrepreneurs and writers. This is the third podcast of Global Local Talk series. Today we will be talking to Naveen Kishor, the publisher of Siegel Books. He runs the Siegel School of Publishing, which offers publishing courses in editing and book design, and is also a trustee of the Siegel Foundation for the Arts, which creates and presents arts across the country. Naveen will be sharing his insights into the business of translation and its importance in cultural history. Naveen, you started your career as a theater practitioner for Kolkata's theater community. What got you into arts? How did this journey from arts to literature take place? Did it happen naturally or you intended it to be this way? Oh, totally naturally. In the sense that uh, as often happens in uh, India where there's still only one drama school for those of us who want to make a life in the theater. Uh, in college, I turned to it as a hobby. And I was told very early when I auditioned for a theater role that you have a North Indian accent. You're not going to be an actor on the stage. Get backstage. So I turned to theater lighting and found that I had a kind of instinct or an aesthetic for designing lighting. And you tend to learn on the job, which is what I did. So it began, literally began, in a theater space where my first role was not one of a, even a lighting designer. Uh, this was a play called Wait Until Dark, and I was, uh, this was about a blind woman who opens a refrigerator, and I was sitting behind the fridge with a cassette recorder to be the refrigerator hum. And then later on, one went on to start doing theater, and that's how the lighting started. And because there wasn't enough let's say, resource for serious theater to pay for lighting designers to make a living, you slowly became what in today's world is called a event manager. And I started to present everybody from Birju Maharaj and Yamni Krishnamurti and Sonal Mansing, you name it, to the Begum Akhtars, to jazz concerts, to theater fests, to fashion shows, whatever, to make a living. And after the first 12 years of doing this, which is a, another story. We started Seagull Books, the publishing, as an arts publishing program almost overnight. And if you want to know the story very briefly, I was producing a theater festival of uh, grassroots theater, which basically meant that normally you have theater performances happening in the city for urban audiences. This was a bunch of young people who were using just their bodies with bare props and no fancy lighting or uh, auditoriums. And these groups were in a kind of 40 kilometer radius of Calcutta. So I got them together in a school hall with benches, about 150 people sitting. And there they performed in the round with floodlights and stuff. One person was sitting, sketching the body movements of this thing. And uh, I turned to somebody who would later become the founding editor of Seagull Books. He was a theater, is a theater scholar, film critic. He was Oxford University Press's editor for a long time, Shomik Bondopadhyay, who was 11 years older. And I said, you know, Shomik, this is going to die out one day. Somebody needs to document this. And he says, well, ideally, 
somebody should publish only theatre and cinema and art because most of the big publishing houses, they tend to have too many mouths to feed. So for them, he said, for example, he said, I work for Oxford University Press. They allow me to do two theatre strips a year. And so I do Badal Sarkar and I do Girish Kanad because they know of my interest in theatre, but they're not seriously making any money out of it. But imagine a small setup with very little overheads just doing the arts. Then perhaps you could make it work. So there was a connection which went from theatre and the performing arts into wanting to document them. And because we already had a name, we were known as Seagull Empire, which, by the way, was, uh, well, it was the name of a rock concert I did in 1972, and which was such a popular concert and got so written about in the magazines and papers that two years later I registered it as a letterhead, a sole propriety company, opened a bank account and said, Seagull Empire presents. So for 10, 12 years, everything was presented under this letterhead or company. So it was obviously whenever you started doing the books, you said, Seagull Books. So it was literally an overnight decision. Remember, with no experience, except an experienced, possible, part-time founding editor in Shopping Banerjee. 38 years of publishing, 1,000 plus titles, of which more than 400 are translations from different languages. When did you start publishing translations? Okay, again, very briefly. So you started life 38 years ago, which is 1982, specifically June 20th. And then in 2005, and you must know this, which is that as a kind of response to all these wonderful multinationals setting down in uh, New Delhi because we speak the language, you, uh, we decided that what if we had Seagull Books London or New York or whatever, and if, like the Penguins and the HarperCollins and the Hatchets that have settled in Delhi, if our money was as good as theirs and we had reasonably wonderful standards of design and editing, then all we needed was reasonably courteous distribution to make the books visible. Why should we not be able to publish anything and everything in the world? And remember, the kind of political baggage we carried at the point was that throughout these years of independence, as Indian publishers, we've always been told by the English-speaking West that you buy rights and publish for within your territory and your country and your subcontinent. We will buy from your lists for the rest of the world. So I said, no, this is a globalized world, is what you tell us. So our geographical location is of little importance. We should also be able to buy world rights as long as we can deliver all the other givens, editing, translation, standards of design, which are, you know, wonderful. And we and that's always been our strength and distribution. So we are distributed into the world by the University of Chicago Press. This experiment, if you like, of 2005 to now, which is, this is our 15th year, of something called Seagull Books London Limited, which is a company we set up, incorporated in Great Britain. We had one more brief to ourselves at that time, which was we would not have an architectural reality or a staffing. All the work would be done in Calcutta. All the printing would be done anywhere in the world, wherever the books are needed. So we print in America, we print in England, we print here. 
the whole in the beginning you went for translation because at that point in five six seven eight nine it had not become the flavor of the season like it is now translations and great demand now every wonderful small publishers who are doing this excellent sort of two or three people companies who are doing some lovely books and winning all kinds of awards at that point english language bookshelves all over the world did not have enough translated literature so i turned to translation where would i turn to i turned to europe primarily because i grew up reading european literature in translation because in the 60s and the 70s that's what american publishing did and that's what india's importer publishers like rupa the old man rupa used to bring the most wonderful translated literature to the footpaths of calcutta so we grew up reading them for me it's like you would turn to some holy book when in times of trouble people turn to holy books to find an answer i always turn to european literature because i grew up reading european literature and i grew up reading it in translation not in the original languages because it was available in this country because someone in the american west was publishing it and somebody here like rupa the old man who started it was importing them so they were available on our footpaths i also found european literature the darkest of literature a place of hope for me personally so i turned to that and it happened to be in 2005 i think it was or 6 it was the 100 years of jean paul sartre and so i went to galima because i knew their archives from my readings earlier and i said you have uh, three volumes of these wonderful sarts waiting to be translated a small selection of some of these have appeared in 1968 by george brazilia the american publisher since then nothing so initially there was all kinds of reactions there was surprise there was a sense of like why would you want to do sart sitting in calcutta or why would you want to publish gurdibo or antoine arto and places like that so i then explained that we had this distribution we were seagull books london limited now once that initial thing happened and they agreed once the first crop of books came out it was like a wonderful floodgate of support from this community of french german and later italian publishers now we have lots of stories about you know how it began and how initially it was difficult it was almost like confusion but once the books came out looking because i who was translating them i went to the best the people who were used to translating an adorno or a celan bachman or a jean paul sartre so you and you paid those rates in those days whether they were 70 pounds or 90 pounds or 80 pounds a thousand words so you were playing by the rules of a certain kind of first world publishing sitting in a third world space like calcutta you were publishing for the world and you were distributing it as i said earlier reasonably courteously through the university of chicago press who made it visible seagull books is the third largest publisher of translated books and the world's largest translator of german literature that includes authors such as ralph rothman and brigitta raiman you're one of the few indian publishers who have been honored by the goethe medal for performing outstanding service to german language and for international cultural relations and just last year you launched the seagull library of german literature tell us about your experience or your interest in german literature i don't know about this third largest business i mean these are things that occasionally newspapers in america pick up and 
arrive at their conclusions. The important thing here to understand is that there's somebody sitting somewhere doing translations in a sustained manner across languages, and which is what we think we wish to do and continue to do. And the German literature list, like the French, has uh, grown considerably over these 14, 15 um, years. It's been a difficult journey at one level. It's also been a very heartwarming journey. Difficult because resources are always scarce. Heartwarming because the support has been absolutely marvelous. First from the Goethe Institutes, more importantly from the community of publishers themselves. We've had uh, lots of wonderful German publishing houses that have supported in terms of giving us authors in their archives, giving us new authors, finding us debut writing that they felt was interesting once they understood the kind of publishing we wanted to do. So it is a kind of circle of trust because I don't read the languages. So I trust my translators who find interesting books. I trust other German publishers who send me interesting samples of books I should publish and my own reading. So that kind of um, helps. The German paperback library that we launched at the Frankfurter Book Messe last year was actually a way, a very old fashioned way of reinventing the books that are in danger of kind of stagnating. So traditionally what used to happen in the old days was that publishers used to worry about how to keep their authors alive both in terms of their revenues and their material being available always in print. All of that changed in today's world where the focus is largely on front list publishing. Things that sell 40,000 to 140,000 quickly that die out. Books that you wouldn't necessarily take your great-grandchildren to in a bookstore and say, I want that. Whereas backlists, you know, you will always go back to the classics. You'll always go back to the greats of a particular age if somebody kept them in print. And who else than the publisher who is also buying into the idea or the philosophy or the ideology of keeping a backlist strong? And it's across your backlist that you sell two copies, three copies, four copies, and not 100,000 copies of any one and then all forgotten. So the, we decided that we have so many hardbacks and we went to Goethe and we, as in, we asked for support and we said we want to bring out 100 paperbacks over four years, 25 a year, reinvent them in low price, beautifully designed so that even bookstores want to keep these designs. And that was launched because they understood that historically, 40 years from now, if somebody keeps these in print, that 100 will become 200 or 300, and they will coexist with the hardbacks and the paperbacks. Translations are often expensive than local texts. Your books are a work of art. Given the number of translations you publish, how do you manage to fund them? Yeah, this is a question that uh, we are often asked, and we also often ask ourselves this. It's actually all about a certain kind of ability to maintain cash flow as against totally profitability. Today's publishing is all about a kind of profit loss. Each book has to have its own profit and loss track, right, even before you commission it. We tend to believe that if two books can fund another 20 because the two of these books are successful and the others are not, but the others needed to be done and needed to be done at a particular time. The support comes in many ways, as does the cash flow. It's 
of course, the sale of the book that is very vital, but it's also the support we get for translation from the Goethe Institute. Uh, the grants that come to support from the French or the Italians. So all of it goes towards forming a sort of common pool of resource, which you dip into as it when you need to. And of course, if none of the sold, so obviously sales are a very vital component of also raising this. The important thing is that the translation grants help you 40% of the way. And the rest of it is your ability to build a strong list which sells over the years. Nowadays, what happens is people are beginning to publish more and more titles each year to meet the numbers that they need to sustain themselves, their companies, as against trying to sell more copies of each book. Now, we tend to believe somewhere in the middle that if you have a strong backlist that you focus attention on, you don't destroy it, you don't discount it and sell it as a remainder book, you get some revenue from there. You get some revenue for converting every single book that you do automatically into ebooks, right? Which doesn't bring in very much money, but that little bit helps. And then, of course, you have the frequency, or you're doing 40 to 50 books a year, right? And not 200 and 250. You can devote attention to selling each book, promoting each book across the world. It's not just for India or just for America. We don't do territories. We do. It's a kind of seamless borderlessness in quite the way the list is. If you go across our various lists, whether it's the Arab list or Africa list, the Swiss list or Austrian list, there's a kind of seamlessness to it, right? So sometimes some list is selling better than the other if you want to look at figures. Sometimes certain individual titles do well. Sometimes you win the Nobel, which we did, and which is fantastic. You had a tiny little book by Moyan and you sold 32 countries. So it's a kind of common pot of money which you you know, you know, dip into as and when you require it. If you were only looking for profits, then no. Regarding distribution of your titles, except for e-retailers, where can one buy Siegel books in India in some stores? Well, the Siegel books is distributed at the moment by Pan McMillan India. So mm-hmm. I'd I mean, I have a list of at least 44 bookstores that regularly order these books. The thing is, in today's reality, except even the chains cannot afford to keep your entire list, right? So it has to be a combination of who is wanting what. And these days, most booksellers want to be able to keep fast-moving inventories, which our books are not. So you would have the new books out there, but you may not have a lot of the older ones. But they're audible because they're on their computers like anywhere else in the world. So, yeah, I mean, they're uh, typically in places like Delhi. You would obviously have the Jorbargs and the Midlands and the Bari and Sons more than you would have, say, a full circle. Uh, or you would have people like Kitab Khala and Wayward Advice and so on and so forth in Bombay, particularly Wayward Advice. You have the star marks of the world that do it. Uh, not so much the Oxford for various reasons. But to us, what's very interesting is something beyond the metro. All our distribution reports point at huge amounts of these wonderful European languages selling in small town India through wholesalers, sub-wholesalers. Where they get to, I have no idea. But it reminds me of the time when people used to write postcards and we were doing our own marketing and selling. 
we used to get like you know you could really sell at least three to four hundred copies against postcard orders from Bhopal and Ludhiana. And it's amazing how eclectic the average Indian's reading was and continues to be. The problem is that when you walk into an Indian bookstore, it looks like a wonderful bookstore, but it offers you the same mix as the other bookstore. It's only the that personality of the bookstore and their ability to curate an interesting from the salad bar that's common to everybody. So Jorbag has a certain mix, uh, or Wayward and Wise has a certain mix. But other than that, it's still not world literature that we find or take for granted anyway the moment you step into America or UK or whatever, other English language countries. Which countries are more successful ones for you in terms of selling books? Well, North America largely because it is the largest market followed with UK. Yeah. And, uh, and somehow, very interestingly, Europe is beginning to buy a lot of English language books. Germany itself is beginning to buy a lot of English language books. Some German publishers are beginning, like Zurkam, to actually publish in English too. And uh, how about e-books or audiobooks? Have you already... Not audiobooks, though we're researching. The possibility where we are not totally confident at the moment is we have the content, but we don't have distribution. So we're trying to figure that out. E-books automatically, within two months of everything we publish, we buy the rights for it. So every book, except for the visual ones, get uh, into the e-book market straight away. It doesn't bring in too much because it is a very limited market for the serious literary kind of non-fiction fiction that we do. Um, what is your advice for fellow publishers who may be thinking of venturing into translations? Well, there already are a lot of publishers who uh, are doing translation. I think it's a great thing as long as you can keep a balance between, for example, we've now, after 15 years of publishing translations, almost 70% of the list is a translation thing. We have for the last two years kind of weird the track a bit and decided that we need to do a lot more originating in the English language, largely because everybody else is doing translation. So you kind of feel that you've set out to do something and that's kind of happened. You know, there are lots more attention being given to translated literature. So we are now, you will see from the next year, doing a lot of originating and increasing more of the English language publishing because it's another revenue stream because everything we publish in the English, we can sell rights to the Europeans too. So it brings you an added revenue. And um, the other interesting thing where this is something that may be of interest to your listeners, which is that the Siegel School of Publishing is a very interesting uh, place where last year we actually had a Cameroonian writer, Leonardo Miano, and who wanted to do something in African publishing. And she came and she did a whole course. And what was very interesting for us is that somewhere during the course, we discovered that she had been commissioned by an important French publisher, who shall go nameless, to publish, use her contacts, and use her as the series editor to publish a series of political philosophical essays from the kind of African Francophone areas. Um, and then after four years of her trying to talk to wonderful authors that she knew intimately, this French publishing company found it couldn't do it. So we took that project on and now we have world rights where we are selling this list which is 
originally written in French to the French publishers or the Germans, and we are publishing it in English for the first time. So this is exciting for us because the whole Siegel project in 2005 when we set up Siegel Books London Limited was to upset the status quo. You reverse things. So this is interesting too. It's a globalized world. I should be able to publish in any language too. So yeah, these are things that you don't plan necessarily as strategies, but when you look back, they look like a method. Many publishers only buy translation rights for literary titles if funding is available, which means that if there is no funding, there won't be any translations. It's not a very progressive outlook, but same is of course true for Indian titles in the West. We can read a few titles into say German, French or Indian titles that originate in English, but if we want to check out translations from other Indian languages into German or French, that is seldom. What can we done to improve accessibility for books in these languages to the West? Well, it's tricky. First of all, it has to do with intent and how much effort you're willing to put in. For example, when I started publishing French and German translations, I had no, I didn't even know that funding was going to be available. If you look at our first crop of books, we've paid for it totally before we discovered that the French have something called a Burgess Grant in UK and a Paptigo Grant here, or the fact that we could turn to the Goethe Institute right? Uh, or that a place called Munich exists, which would give you grants for translation. So the intent was already there that come what may, we will do this. So we were discovering. For us, it was a project of discovery. There was no precedent of a publisher sitting here doing all this. The reason why when you have 20 years apart, two India years at Frankfurt Book Messe, and nothing really successful happens by way of wonderful rights changing hands both ways, except for individual cases, is because you need education at the other side too. Just bringing a wonderful de delegation of publishers across each other's countries and doing a kind of uh, herded, guided publishing tourism type thing is not what it's about. It has to be individuals interested. If I want a French title or a German title, I used to go to these publishers, travel there, go to them outside the book fairs, in their offices, in their homes, and then talk to them. Similarly, every time we have invited, and Zurkamp is a case in point, where we invite people at our cost to come and see the reality here, to talk to publishers here, build relationships here, then you get interested enough to invest in translating into Bengali or Hindi or whatever, because it takes much more effort. It's easier for me to find translators from German and French and English, but for them to find it's not easy. It's very difficult. So unless there is serious interest in a publisher there, this is always going to be the case. It's always going to be that one-off title. How do you think technology will change the game and pace of translations market? I'm not afraid of the e-book. I try and do better and better e-books. Um, but I know the reality is that my print sells better. Also because of the way it looks. And I'd like to believe that that's become an important factor once again. A lot of publishers who were doing cheaper looking paper, all the rest of it, have come back to doing better and better books because people want the tactility of something that they hold in their hands to look and feel good too. Now, if you're going to spend the rest of your life worrying about the fact that your great-grandchildren will, you know, not be reading, that's not true because they'll always be writing. Remember that. That's not changing. You and I will always be writing books. They will always be readers, only the surfaces and the materials will change. That's all right. And before we go, can you recommend some of your favorite titles, maybe in German or other languages? 
Or straight away. Because how many do you want? No, no. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like uh, I just give you one. So I'm often asked this absolutely ridiculous question that what is the favorite book you've published in over a thousand odd books? And for the last five years, I've actually been able to pick up a book. It's called Atlas of an Anxious Man. This mm-hmm. is by Christopher Ansmeyer, who is in fact coming to India uh, next month. And he's just written another new book, which has to do with China and an emperor who would want to control time. It's called Cox. But it's an unfair question for somebody like me because I commission every single book. And of the 500 books in translation that I commissioned blindly in some ways, because I don't read these languages, over 14 years, four don't work for me. So that's not a bad track record. Well, all right then, ladies and gentlemen, we thank Mr. Naveen Kishore for taking the time to share his journey of translations with us. Do write to us with suggestions on topics or experts you would like to listen to. For comments and feedback, do write to contact at newdelhi.gbo.org. The Frankfurter Bookmesser is the international publishing industry's biggest trade fair, with more than 7,000 exhibitors from 104 countries, 300,000 visitors, 4,000 events, 10,000 journalists and bloggers. It is the most important international marketplace for content, not only for publishing, but games, technology, virtual reality, business opportunity. In a nutshell, it is the place to spark new partnerships.